Last week we started the book of James and looked at uh, just the, the one verse, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in dispersion, greetings. And today we'll start with verse 2 and uh, we're going to skip a couple so just follow along as we go through this. Looking at verses 2 through 4 to start with in chapter 1 of James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I want to jump over to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, of, uh, test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, Bring forth death. What we're focusing obviously on this morning are trials and tribulations. The idea is to look at as to how to handle or to understand, accept the reality that they are with us. Trials and tribulations. And the first thing that, that I come to in my mind is this idea that Jesus told us that we're going to have a peace that passes understanding, and then we have these trials and these tribulations. One might be prone to say, where's the peace? Where is it? Uh, you know, I keep waiting for it. And if we're looking for the world to supply our peace, or circumstances, or finances, or other things to supply our peace, we're going to find that it doesn't work. In fact, uh, one commentator put it, he said that, that, that peace is actually rare as far as looking at the world. I recall when I was in, in uh, college, they were talking about the history uh, of civilization and the reality that there was only a couple of hundred years of recorded history where there wasn't war. And of that, they probably were just simply not recorded. Uh, that, that it happened, but that just nobody knew about it. Uh, to record it into the history of the Western civilization. Uh, so the idea is that war is something that's constant with it. Peace is rare. It's not the norm. So I've, I, I wrote to myself here, what is the norm? Trials and tribulations. The battle to survive. And I looked at that and I thought, to survive... You know, to if you're looking at the world and the way they look at it, the battle to survive to what? Well, our golden years, or our silver years, or whatever they might be. Uh, our golden years, and I and I thought, yeah, the the old saying, I work 40 years to retire on 40 percent less of what that I than I could make it on before. Uh, we, you know, we find ourselves with tight finances and failing health in our golden years. And so again, I put this question forward, where's the peace? And I'm going to answer this question in a couple of ways this morning. But first, I'm going to say it's left behind in the garden. We first have to understand why we don't see peace in the world. It's left behind in the garden at the fall. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, familiar uh, Parts of Scripture for most of us. 
uh, is the temptation of Adam and Eve to eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Satan is the tempter in this situation. And, and so we find that uh, Genesis uh, 3, 1 through 7, and I'm just going to go through and read it. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any uh, uh, tree in the garden? And the woman said to the servant, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the servant said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, in other words, the idea of this idea of good for food, it looked tempting. It looked like something you would want to, to eat. You know, good for food in that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So right off the bat, they take and they eat, and they realize they are naked. Now someone says, well, they must have known they were unclothed before. This phrase, they realize that they were naked, was that they're seeing each other's body with different eyes now. They have the knowledge of good and evil. They have the knowledge of how to abuse, misuse. And people say, well, how did they learn that so fast? You've got to understand, these are the first people. They had the capacity for, for, for great things in their thinking. We have it confused sometimes. We have evolution. We're so used to hearing it that we think that man has evolved to great brilliance at this point in time. I believe that man was at his full capacity of brain power in the beginning. Creation science stands with that. And we look at things in, in, in around the, some of the archaeological digs in this world today, and we are absolutely amazed at how they, how they could have possibly been built by ancient man. Stones so big that were moved hundreds of miles in some cases that we can't budge today with any of the stuff we have. How did they do that? We don't know. But they had the science and the capability to do it. So Adam and Eve, as soon as they, they had this, this understanding, all of a sudden evil was a part of their thinking. And immediately they knew they were naked, meaning that they, they saw each other in a different way. And as a result, they, they tried to clothe themselves. They tried to hide themselves. And... It says that, that when God comes into the garden, it, it goes on, and they heard the sound of the Lord, verse 8, God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife had, uh, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, what the real issue is, is here is that their fear was because they had done something. They had ignored God's Word. 
Yeah, they were naked, but that, that was the biggest fear was they had ignored God's word. What was going to be the consequence now? Death. They didn't understand possibly. Somebody say they didn't understand the, the idea of death. I think they were able to comprehend the word and understand the idea that somehow this is going to change the relationship between us and God. So much so that they did for the first time something they had never done before. They hid from God. I think of little children when they know that they have done something that they shouldn't do and they run and they hide, even if they have never been instructed in that particular thing before. And you wonder, you know, and, and why? Well, because they just, they know. Adam and Eve knew that they had ignored the Word of God. They hid from God. And so God confronts Adam. He says, where are you? Well, we hid from you. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, huh, the woman you gave me. The woman you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Well, then the Lord said to the, uh, to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And thus begins the blame game. Not wanting to accept responsibility. The condition of the world since then has been in decline. It has fallen. Somebody, some people will say, well, we, are, we're, we have more than we've ever had before, uh, as if that's good. The reality is, is that we live in a world that does not acknowledge as a whole who God is. In fact, they are prone to worship the things God has created. And we worship in different ways. We might not worship outright, but we might worship through our covetousness. What we want so badly that we work so hard for and believe that we will find peace and happiness when we have it. And then something comes into our life and snatches it away from somehow. And you sit there and you, you mourn and you grieve. The problem is that man has ignored the things of God. Paul put it this way in the book of Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteous suppress the truth. They suppress the truth, meaning they have caught a glimpse of it, but they refuse to acknowledge it. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their, in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, 
to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And in serving the creature, there's a broad meaning to that, which means implied, one of the things that is implied there is serving ourselves. Being more concerned about ourselves than any other part of things. In other words, a sense of selfishness. That's part of the fall. We think of ourselves first. It's obvious when you think about it. Look what Adam did. You chuckled when I read it. He didn't, he, he didn't take the responsibility on himself. He selfishly did what? He pointed to the woman and to God. God, it's the woman you gave me. And so he's blaming God and he's blaming Eve. Well, Eve turns around and says, I didn't, I didn't do it on my own. I was tempted. I was, I, was, I was enticed. I was lured by Satan. He is responsible. By the way, was Satan responsible for the lie that he put forth? Absolutely. Satan was addressed in, the, in the, the punishment, in the judgment. Eve was addressed in the punishment. And man was addressed in the punishment. Now, according to James, the blame, the blame game continues. I'm going to actually look at this a little reverse. I want to look at verses 13, 14, and 15 first this morning. I want to read them again. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you. Uh, excuse me. I was reading from Romans. <laughs> Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. In other words, our, our, we look at this. If God is sovereign and He's all-knowing, then isn't He responsible? James' answer is to say no. Let's look at it carefully. You're not to say that you're tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. God is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. He is light. There is no shadow of darkness. There's no hint of darkness. It's so brilliant that you can't look upon Him. It's, it's this picture of, of absolute purity. And as a result, He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So I look at this and it says no one can be tempted. No one is to, to look at God and say, I'm being tempted by God. But I still find myself, I'm going to be personal about this. Why me? Now, implied in that very statement, why me, is 
I don't deserve this. Isn't it? I don't deserve this. We talked a few weeks ago, and I think we mentioned it was the idea of do we really want what we were we deserve? And I, you know, the question would be, if you really, really want what you deserve, raise your hand. Yeah, and we are knowing that I, I'm truly preaching. I look around, I know all of you, so I feel like I'm preaching to the choir. You know, the idea is that we know what we deserve. We deserve the penalty of death, just as Adam hid from God because he was afraid. He had broken that commandment. He had broken the word of God. He had disobeyed. And God said that will bring about death. And while he didn't fully understand, I believe, the idea of the fullness of death, he understood enough of it that he was afraid. He was afraid of it. By the way, death is never our friend. I have heard that preached from a few pulpits. I've heard it preached at sermons at, at funerals. Death has ushered us into the presence of God. Death doesn't usher us anywhere. Christ's life and death on the cross, in His case, that ushers us into God through His resurrection. So keep that in mind as you, you think about it. Death isn't our friend. Death is the consequence of, uh, of, of evil, of sin. It's the result of sin. It's the end of sins. It's the result of sin. However you want to put it. And it's not our friend. We don't embrace it. Are we afraid of it anymore as believers? No, it's lost its sting. Meaning it, it, it's something we don't fear anymore because we know Christ defeated death. But it's never our friend. It's still the result of sin. But coming back to this picture, why me? Back to James, verse 14. Every person is tempted when he is lured and enticed. And I, I, this, the word lured and enticed together, but it kind of implies, I, I don't know how many of you are fishermen or fisherwomen, fisher people, uh, you know, but the idea is that if you fish with a lure, okay, what do you, what's your goal? To lure a fish to what? Strike the bait, or strike the, the lure at this point, the hook, the hook. Okay? And these words are basically, the word is, implies the word baited. Okay? And so I thought that's interesting because, I, I, you know, each person is tempted when he is baited. There is someone out there setting a trap with bait. But notice who is responsible when it's taken by his own desire. And the word desire here encompasses the word lust. And it's interesting because the word is used in a such a way in a couple of other places in the Scripture where lust can actually be a good thing. We always think of lust negatively because of, of, of what it's come to mean in our culture. But there was a thing as, as to desire something with a great intensity that you go after it. Well, we desire God. We go after Him. Okay? But in this case, we see the bait. We desire it. It's attractive. It looks good. It's pleasing to the eyes. It satisfies my fleshly desires. That's what Eve basically said. You know, Satan said, look at it. It's good. She looked at it and said, wow, it's, 
I don't know if, if, if it was shiny or what it was, but it was something that she looked at and, and, and it was tempting. And as a result, sin. So by our own desire, our own lust, and it begins a chain reaction. As we desire something, as we lust after it, in a sense of the, this idea of baited, looking into the trap and wanting what is there, begins a chain reaction. Verse 15 says, this desire, this love, this lust gives birth to sin. And it's interesting that it's actually using the same idea of childbirth. It births sin. And when sin brings about its perfect end, it births, brings forth death. Death here, physical death, spiritual death. In the fourth chapter of James, James talks about resist the devil and he will flee from you. And uh, the idea is, is, is Satan baits the trap, he, he, the snare, the hook, however you want to look at this, and that's true, but the responsibility is mine to resist. I choose... Therefore, I am responsible, and when I sin, I am guilty. I don't need a jury. I don't need to go to trial. I already, the Scripture points it out. You know, we know when, what sin is. Now, I, I'm cautious with that. There is stuff that I see as sin today that I didn't recognize as sin when I first became a Christian. But that's as we grow closer and closer to the Lord. The idea is I realize how much God wants us to be holy and pure. And how many things distract me from that. So I choose. And I find myself guilty. I'm not going to let you ask me if I've been guilty in the last 24 hours. But you already know the answer. And so all of this leads us to this point to where we have a reality check. I can't fix this. I'm helpless. I'm dead. That's the condition of the world. That's the condition the world is that, that, that Paul wrote about in Romans chapter one. We can't help it. We feed the flesh. We desire the flesh. We sin. We choose it. And, and that doesn't mean that, that, that you've never been enticed in a sense of a way that somebody sinned and sinned and sinned and finally drew you in. And, and you might say, oh, I wasn't as guilty on that. I mean, it is, they beat me down or whatever, you know. But the idea is that we're still responsible. And how many sins does it take to be outside of the grace of God in the sense of, of his, his general picture of grace. How many? Yeah, I see a couple of people going like this. You know, One sin is all it takes. So I come down to that thought, 
Yeah, and, and you've, I, I use it frequently. I use the phrase, wretched man that I am. And I thought, as I looked at that this morning, wretched man that I am, I said, wait, you know, I don't normally go to, the, to Romans chapter 7 and read the, the context of that. So, I'm going to do that this morning. Romans chapter 7, starting with the 21st verse. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, when he says a law, he means a law of, of nature. And in that context, we're not talking about redeemed nature. We're talking about fallen nature. So I find it to be a law that when I, was to, when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You see, we are still in fallen bodies. Our bodies are aging. Yet we're told in eternity that won't happen anymore. <laughs> At least three amens there. Uh, you know, we're, we're told that there will be no suffering, no sin, uh, no, no, no pain, no illness. It, we're, it's, it's totally free of the things that sin has brought into this world. There's no hint of darkness in God's eternal picture. And so Paul is saying, I find myself captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, verse 24, who will deliver me from this body of death? In other words, I am helplessly, hopelessly lost. Who is going, what can I do? And then he has the answer. Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve, I, I serve the law of sin. In other words, there's, going to, there's a battle. As long as I live in this earthly flesh, I am going to have a battle with wanting to feed my flesh and not my spirit. There's going to be a conflict constantly. It's always going to be there. So I am a wretched man. I am exactly what, what Paul describes himself. Wretched man that I am. What is my hope? Well, my hope is in Jesus Christ who changes the way my, I think in the sense He changes our heart. He creates in us a new being, a new creature. He restores us. He redeems us. I don't know how many words we could use to, to get it, but that's the picture. And in the process, He's making us new. Are we there yet? No, in one sense. Yes, in another. Yes, because we are a part of the kingdom of God. It's a done deal. But no, we haven't arrived at that perfection. We are still in the battle. You all heard my artichoke thing before, but I'll use it one more time, and that is the idea of an artichoke. If you're an artichoke connoisseur, you look at the leaves, and if, and if you've got a nice one, you know, uh, you've, you've cooked it and... The, the outer leaves are a little crusty and they're, they're a little bit tough to get off. And, there's, and when you go to eat the, the meat as you peel it off on the, of the, the leaf, it's kind of hard to get out and there's not much there. But as you get into it, you find yourself able to eat more and more of the leaf. And there's more 
enjoyment in it. And you finally get down to what the goal is. And what's the goal of our, our, our eating an artichoke? The heart. You know. And what happens? Well, if, after you chew all the leaves, you just take a bite, right? No. You've got one more process left. To me, this is a mature Christian. The, the heart of the artichoke at this point is the mature Christian. Because God is now down to the heart of the matter. And those little thistles need to be scraped away before you can take a bite of the heart. And that's a process that you do carefully because you don't want to lose too much of the heart. You just don't take a big knife and... You know, you scrape. You cut with a spoon sometimes. Some people will use it, especially if it's been cooked well and it's, and it's, it's tender. You take this... But you, it's, it's a process. And I thought of, of, of if the artichoke could... could be equated to in some way as a, a thinking of it as something that had feeling, the worst part of the process would have been the last. And I think sometimes as, as, as maturing Christians, we realize that there is more and more things, some things for me that are not for you, that are sin. God is down to the thistles. He's scraping, getting the final bits. As we come into a relationship with God, wretched man that I am, you know what's going to happen? Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25, again, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of, the God, of God with my mind, but with my flesh I, I still find myself serving the, the, the law of sin. There's a battle going on. But yet, as a result of resting in Christ, chapter 8, verse 1 becomes a reality. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ. Jesus from the law of sin and uh, Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. He is through Christ solved the problem. What did Christ do? He emptied himself according to Philippians chapter 2, came into this world, came into this world as a man. He didn't only come in as a man. He came in as, as, as a, 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 an infant in a womb. He had to grow from the womb to birth. And I'm willing to, to bet that, 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 that he cried just like any other baby born. Do you think he was hungry? We know that he hungered. Do you think he ever got tired? We know that he got tired. He had all the same temptations that every man has. Hebrews is explicit about that, yet he yielded to none of them, resulting in what only he could do, be the perfect sacrifice on the cross. And for everyone that would call on His name, confess with His mouth, and believe in His heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, He would be able to say, you are saved. Now, as a result, Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation hanging over you. Paul went from wretched man that I am to no condemnation in just a couple of verses. 
Why? Because of what Christ has done. Helplessly, hopelessly lost. In James, go back to the Scripture here. We're not to blame God. But then he turns around and, and, and actually started this off. Count it all joy, my brothers, my fellow believers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I put count trials, joy, and then underlined the next word with question marks all around it. <laughs> what? Count it all joy, pure joy, real joy, great joy. My brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. The trials are going to be there. It's part of living in a fallen world. Paul says to count them joy. There's a reason. And, I, and I'm, I'm pulling a side note out of this. Because when we look around the world, the world around us, and we look at our own lives and our own sin, we realize because of what God has shown us, I think of, of Galatians talking about the law and of, of God's holiness and righteousness and all, teaching us what sin is and the reality that we need a Savior. As we count our trials, joy, we realize who we are in our own strength. And it shows us who we are when we rest in Christ's strength. If I rest in my own strength, do I count my trials joy? No. But if I rest in God's strength, I may not be able to see it at this point, but the reality of my faith is to say, I know somehow God is in this, will turn it around, and He will work it for good. Do I always see how? Is it something that I will always see in my lifetime? No. But I know that He will. Paul agrees with James. Uh, Paul uh, wrote in the, again in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 3, he says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Pretty amazing picture. James says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect what you may, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If sin has its full effect, what happens? We die. If Christ and His grace and His, and His relationship with us has its full effect, He says that we will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This idea of lacking in nothing means everything that's needed to allow us to be before the throne of God and embraced 
rather than judged is taken care of. Nothing is lacking. I have no way of bringing anything that contributes to my salvation in that sense. Christ has finished the work. It's done. The verse that I look to here, this idea of steadfastness, you know, lacking nothing and, 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 and all of it coming together, the reality is, is that this lack of nothingness is that I will be at peace with God. There's no other way I can be at peace with God but through Jesus Christ. There is no other way to be at peace with God. So the end result of this, this picture that, that, that James is putting together here, blessed is the man, verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. What a way to, to, to look at all of this. I know I took it kind of a roundabout way to get there, but I wanted to start with the reality of the way the world is. We blame everything but ourselves. It's, it's the government. It's, the, it's this. It's that. It's whatever. But the reality is, is that we're responsible before the throne of God for us, for ourselves. And as a result, we can't blame. Not only can we not blame God, we can't blame anybody else either. We can't even say, Flip Wilson... The devil made me do it. All we can say is I'm naked and I want to hide from God in my sin. Unless I've confessed with my mouth and believed in my heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and accepted Him as my Savior. So, blessed is the man that remains steadfast under trial. Once more, I find myself putting the, the word, wait a minute here. What if? I have confessed Christ. I've come to Him. And what if? I blow it. What if? As a believer, I sin. Well, I've already said, you know, we know that's that the reality. If we say there's no sin in us, we're, we're, we're making out that, that the Word of God has lied to us. A steadfast person of faith, when he sins, he knows it. Why? Because the indwelling Holy Spirit is convicting. We may try to hide from it for a while, but eventually it gets us to the point where we have to bring it about and say, I know it's there. And I have to do something about it. What is it that we're called to do? First John chapter 1. Confess. Confess our sin. Now, this idea of confessing our sin isn't the idea of just trying to get out from underneath it. 
When we confess, it has to be the desire of our heart that this sin is as ugly to us as it can possibly be. That we look at the cross and we see what it cost for it to be covered. And we're grieved over it. It can't be something casual is what I'm getting at. But when we confess our sin with a, with a, a heart of desire to be right before the throne of God, it says that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And chapter 2 of 1 John goes on to tell us that we have an advocate in Christ Jesus who stands at the throne of God on our behalf. Though our lawyer is God. God is the judge and God is our lawyer. And if we have confessed Christ, we rest in His mercy, in His grace. We're told that we can come with confidence to His throne. In chapter 4, we can come with confidence to His throne for His mercy and His grace as believers. And so when I come with my sin and and I confess and He forgives me, I know that it is done. And God isn't like we are. We tend to keep a memory log. And it's not to say that, you know, how many of you have heard God forgives and forgets? Don't, don't misunderstand who God is. If He forgives and forgets and brings it up no more, we would know nothing about sin in, in, in any of the patriarchs of the Scripture. We wouldn't know about David and Bathsheba, for instance. It's, God's Word is permanent, Right? And so we know about it. God can use the the things of our past, the sin and our testimony, our witness as to what God has done to us to teach and help and and, and bring others into a right relationship with God. But he forgives in such a way that when it says the east to the west or the deepest part of the sea, in the sense of where he casts it, means he doesn't pull it out and throw it at us on judgment day. He says, oh, and by the way, even though I forgave you of this, I want to remind you. He doesn't, he doesn't judge us. It's done. It's gone. It's under the blood of Christ. What an amazing thing to think about. Like I said, that's far better than we are. I've been told that forgiveness is that picture of a book. The marriage counselor, <laughs> the, the, did, the, the pastor that married Kathy and I, told us sin was like a, a book. And, it, and it, here's the, the, the book is the sin and what had happened and all this kind of stuff. And we put it on the shelf. Can we still see the title? We know that it happened? Yeah. But we no longer take it off the shelf and throw it at the person that did it when we get angry. Nor do we take it off the shelf when we're talking with other people and say, oh yeah, I've experienced that. Nor do I, when I sit in my own little pity party, pull it off the shelf and review it. I leave it there. That's when forgiveness is working. This is to live in God's grace as the result of, you know, is, is, is that we receive the crown of life. And I want to emphasize, the crown of life is presented in a lot of ways. There's a lot of different ideas about what it means. Is the crown of life a reward? I do not believe that. I believe the crown of life is a gift. Is it a result of our steadfastness? Well, your salvation is a result of your steadfastness. Did you do anything to get your salvation? <laughs> you know, 
this, this crown of life is a result of your faith in Jesus Christ. It's not something you earned. If it weren't for Jesus Christ, you wouldn't have it. So I put it in the category of gift. The crown of life is something that God has given me as a, as a, a, a symbol of what Christ has done in me. It's nothing that I have earned. Because the words eternal life come around a lot more frequently than the word crown of life. In fact, it's only mentioned twice here and in Revelation chapter 2. I know that I have eternal life in Jesus Christ. And the crown of life is a symbolic picture of that. So I don't see it as a reward. I see it as a gift which God has promised to who? To those who love Him. The only way you can prove your love for God is to be resting in the salvation of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. There's only one name by the end of heaven that you might be saved according to Acts chapter 4. And that is that of Christ. Jesus Christ. That's it. And so, the only avenue to this crown of life, to eternal life, is through Jesus Christ. Therefore, those who love God know Christ as His Savior. Somebody's going to... Well, I've, I've actually been asked this before. Are you saying, therefore, that somebody uh, that's uh, Jewish, who believes in the Old Testament, and just is waiting still for the Messiah, is not in this category? My answer to that is yes. Somebody say, well, that's very harsh. It's not harsh. It's just simply the way it is according to the Word of God. And I don't see God as a harsh God. I see Him as a merciful God because God so loved that He gave His only Son. We rest in His grace. We rest in His mercy. We haven't, you know, we've been talking about wisdom through Proverbs and wisdom and coming into the book of James. It's considered a book that deals with wisdom. True wisdom initially begins in resting in God's grace through Jesus Christ. To the world, it's considered, you know, you go to 1 Corinthians, to the world, that's considered foolishness, narrow-minded, exclusionist. But the reality is, if you are truly wise, you rest in Jesus Christ. Peter also wrote something in reference to suffering and trials and tribulations. He said, Finally, all of you who have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless to those who, are, uh, who you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. 
For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and the ears are, are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And the only way you can come into the category of the righteous is through the blood of Christ. For that to apply to you, it comes through the blood of Christ. Close with this slot. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power and are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though you now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the test, tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That idea is looking excitedly forward to the coming of Christ, being excited even now, knowing He is coming. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We've been looking at the outcome of things. Outcome of sin. The outcome of steadfastness. Well, here's the outcome of your faith. The salvation of your souls. And I'd like to go to communion at this point. It's an opportunity for all of us to look at ourselves. Communion is something that we're told always to approach with the idea of examining our hearts. Looking at ourselves. Confessing our sins. It's not something, you know, some people get concerned if we take it every week that it, it gets to the point where it's considered something that we just do without thinking. And sometimes that could be true, I suppose. But I also see in Scripture as often as they met together, they broke bread together. They shared in communion together. It's that opportunity to recognize what Christ has done. Would the ushers come forward?